Tom Rempel of the past would have uh, broken the preaching calendar schedule and jumped right into a Mother's Day sermon, but I determined that this probably speaks to the hearts of mothers more than anything I could have selected, and so I want you to turn to the book of the Psalms in the 49th chapter. It was 2004 at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. Dr. Hayden Robinson, who's the Prince of Preachers, he wrote the book on how to preach the Word, began his message like this. What, he asked, does a donkey have in common with a doctor, or a lion with a lawyer, a tiger and a teacher, a ferret and a farmer? What does a pig have in common with a pastor? And then he unpacked Psalm 49, the riddle psalm. Hear this, all peoples, and give ear all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, and those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Surely no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish, and they leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He's like the beast that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve their boast. Selah. When I was a child, we had a traveling evangelist stayed in our home, and he said the word Selah or Selah simply means, well, think of that. Like sheep, they are appointed for the grave. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in the grave with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of the grave, for he will receive me. Well, think of that. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers, who will never again see the light. With that as the canvas, as the background, Jesus continues his Sermon on the Mount, which is the declaration of his kingdom manifesto. These are the values, these are the principles, these are the promises that will control when Christ rules. He said there will be a greater character. Those who follow his leadership will experience a wider love. There will be a deeper piety, and yes, theirs would be a higher ambition. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6, we, we have 
Jesus speaking of two different worlds. We dealt with the first one last week when we dealt with the world of the sacred, chapter 6, verses 1 to 18, when he talked about our, our giving and our praying and our fasting, urging us not to look for the approval of others or the applause of men or even become self-congratulatory, but to do it in secret, knowing that our Heavenly Father sees and rewards in secret. And then this week, in verses 19 to 34, we deal with the, the second part of the world, and that's our, our secular world. That's the, that's, that's the world where we live amongst other people. It's the, the world of the here and now, and God is concerned about both our sacred and our secular lives, and so he gives these instructions here. Notice in verses 19 to 21, he says that we are dealing with two different treasures. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then this indictment for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your heart will always follow the thing that you most value. I want you to notice that in verses 19 to 24 that he deals with the totality of a man, his, his, his heart, his mind, and his will. But in this particular case, he deals with the treasures of the heart. So you have to ask yourself the question, what is this treasures? We immediately default to finances, money, savings, retirement accounts, and things like that. But a treasure, biblically, is simply whatever it is that you are pursuing with your life. It's whatever you are pouring yourself, your life, your energies into. It might be the accumulation of wealth and building bigger and bigger barns and bigger and bigger reservoirs for your years of retirement. It might also just simply be your job, your career track. That the thing that, that seems to define who you are gives you security. Regrettably, our treasure can actually become our children and our family. We, we somehow think that if I raise super godly children and they're well known amongst my friends and neighbors that I will have been a success. Whatever it is that you are pouring your life into, what Jesus reminds you of is that it will not last forever. If your treasure is simply things that you are measured by, that you are secure in, in the here and now, the moths or the rust is going to destroy it. And see, we, we have to read this through the lens of their culture and not ours. You know, today we have all kinds of cedar closets and dry cleaners and all of that. My grandmother didn't have that. She would, she would put her things in a trunk, and then she'd put these little white things called mothballs in there. And then when it came time to change seasons, she would take that out of the trunk, she would hang it on the back porch, and then she would wear it to uh, Jansen Mennonite Church or Jansen Bible Church later on, and she smelled like the trunk, the, the mothballs. It was, they didn't have that. Everything they had, and they didn't have large wardrobes. They basically had maybe one outfit, two at the most, but they were always vulnerable to destruction. And they didn't have nice climate-controlled homes to live in, but everything about them was sub subject to, to nature, to the climate. And so even a treasured thing would start to tarnish and it would start to rust. We, Jesus at another point says that we are attached to the things that are destroyed through the using. 
Linda commented that our, that our, our car didn't have any marks on it, and I started driving it to the office, and now suddenly it shows wear and tear. So it's the things that are simply destroyed through the using. I stood again on Friday in a cemetery with a family, 75-year-old grandmother. When the hearse came and the hearse left, there was neither a trailer hitch on it nor a U-Haul. All that was left was her memories. Whatever it is that you are investing your life in, if it's only here, it will remain here. Working through the book of Ecclesiastes with a college student and is reminded that, that, that we accumulate wealth hoping that we can enjoy the wealth, but the reality is we're going to accumulate all kinds of things that we're going to leave, and according to Solomon in Ecclesiastes, some fool's going to come along who did nothing to attain it, and he's going to squander what we have accomplished. Wherever it is that you work, if, if your work is your identity, it's your security, it's your significance, someone else is going to sit at your desk. You're just interim at best. You're always interim from day one. Someone else will come along. If you're lucky, they'll at least for six weeks after you're gone, remember that you were there and you did a good job. Or as Pastor George used to say, if, if, if I'm graced 30 days after I die, someone will still remember that I once lived. The fact is, is that if you're investing, oh, that's what Jesus is saying. If you, if you pour your life into earthly treasures, they will not last. That's the heart. Whatever you pour your life into, your heart follows after. And now he said there's two conditions. Verse 22 to 23. And as you're reading along in the Sermon on the Mount, you come to this paragraph and you're going, that doesn't fit. That makes absolutely no sense. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And you're asking yourself the question, what is he talking about? He's talking about the mind. That is, do you see with clarity or do you see with darkness and confusion? Are you drawing your conclusions on the value of what you're investing your life in with clarity? Are you looking at it from the eternal perspective or from the earthly? If you simply influence, and he says in Romans chapter 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The world is always trying to reshape our values and our understanding. Everything that we would hold to be of eternal significance, the world would say, that's foolish and that's crazy. And the question is, are you seeing it through the eyes of the world? That's darkness. And if you are, the darker the world gets, the darker your vision will get. Or are you seeing it with the light of eternity shed upon you? It's the mind. And then in verse 24, he says, there are two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Again, we have, we have to read this not in 2021 terminology, but we have to read it in the day that Jesus spoke. And the reality is, is that you can have multiple bosses and employments. A few months ago, uh, Senator Ben Sass spoke to 65 young pastors in Omaha, and he said, in the very near future, every household is going to have to have at least three income streams to survive with technology and replacement of people with machines and computers and all, that in order to keep your family afloat, you're going to have to have multiple sources of support. You see, you can have one, two, or three bosses, as it were, but it's not the case in this culture. They were slaves. 
They could only be owned by one slave master. They were not getting their mandates, their instructions from two sources. And so he said, you have to make the choice. Will you be the slave of mammon or will you be the slave of God? Mammon defined is not money as such. It's just whatever that thing is in which you trust. Where you put your trust, that is the mammon. It's your source of security and confidence. You will become a slave. The amazing thing about possessions is, is, is that we accumulate them so that we can own them to wake up one day and find out they suddenly own us. Nobody wants to work for their wealth. They want their wealth to work for them. But once you attain it, you find out you become a slave to the master of your successes. The writer of the Proverbs in 30 verse 8 said, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I am full and I deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and I steal and I profane the name of the Lord. So what does my heart treasure? Whatever I treasure, that's where it'll go. What's my mind? Am I looking at what I'm doing with my life in the current times from the eternal perspective or simply by the influence of the culture around me? And then the third one is, where do I submit my will? Will I submit my will to the thing that earthly security and bodily comfort or will I submit my will to the eternal God? Jesus' diagnosis of the problem, and I, I owe this. I, I, I took out an old Bible. I was looking at my notes in the Bible from which I preached this one time, and I thought, Rempel, you're not smart enough to come up with this outline. Where did this come from? And I couldn't figure it out, so I started pulling books off of my shelf. And I, I owe this a, a great debt to Dr. John Stott. It's John Stott's observations. His is this. You have your treasure in the wrong place. Jesus' diagnosis of those that are worldly-minded is that they are building their treasure, they are storing their securities in the wrong place. You are thinking of life in the wrong way. You are serving the wrong kind of master. No one wants to serve their wealth. They want their possessions to serve them. In Matthew 19 21, Jesus speaking to the young man that came and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life, and he says, well, you can keep the law. He says, I've kept the law from my childhood up, and he says, then I want you to go and sell all that you have. He says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. You have a choice to make. Will you serve your wealth, or will you serve the master? And he went away grieved because he had great riches. Psalm 112 verse 4 said, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Wealth and riches are in his house. His righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. And it is well with the man who deals generously. Luke chapter 12, another story Jesus tells to rich people. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of of his possessions. He goes on to tell the story about a wealthy farmer who had a fertile soil and a bumper crop year, and he said to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. We call that retire. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you, 
And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Paul tackled this in 1 Timothy chapter 6 when he writes his letter to Timothy, shepherding the church in Ephesus, a wealthy community. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. That is the the most stunning reality, that when a loved one dies, they even leave their pajamas. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many things. Don't forget about the Demas syndrome from 2 Timothy 4. Demas, having loved this present world, has left me. As for the rich of this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Or this from Hebrews 13, 5. This is a personal one, a little over 28 years ago. I was in transition between jobs and ministry, and I had a, had a rather uh, unsettling uh, meeting uh, headed up for that evening, and uh, Linda was at home concerned about how things would work out and all of that. And uh, our 15-year-old daughter came into her room and sat on the end of the bed, and she said, Mom, look at what I was reading in my devos tonight. Keep your life free from the mon- love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? But it was a Freudian slip, and she said, what can that man do to me? Spontaneously got two stories this week of people that understood things eternal. In 2019, the International Teacher of the Year is, is a man in Kenya who grew up in a rural community in a poverty-stricken home, one of seven children whose father made it possible for them to get an education. And he now teaches in the same kind of environment in which he grew up. He takes 80% of his salary and invests it in his school and his students. And another friend over coffee on Friday told me about a mutual friend who come into the end of his career decided he wanted to invest in something that would outlast him. He wanted to invest in world missions. And he created a foundation directed by others, and he started it with a gift of $10 million. And I'm thinking, I gave the waitress last night just over 20% a tip, and if I give God a 10% tip on Sunday, I think I'm really doing something significant. James chapter 5, verse 2 says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be an evidence against you. And here's, here's the line. For you have laid up treasure 
in the last day. It's the farmer who says, all right, now you can retire and enjoy your life. And he says, today, your life will be from you. A few years ago, the president of my Bible college came here to speak. He spoke at a men's retreat, and then he was preaching on Sunday. And so to help the congregation know that the next week we would have two services, but he would preach two different sermons, so they should plan on staying for the whole morning. The second sermon was entitled, Two Cans of Cold Beer. When we put that in the bulletin the week before, one of the elders' wives read me the riot act. I mean, she was like really exercised about it. And I said, understand, I, I know what he's going to say and I know what he's going to do. So trust me, but she did not. When Dr. Bill finished his message, the second message that Sunday, she came up to me and says, I'm so sorry. You're exactly right. He knew exactly what he was doing. It's a true story of the day of the fall of Saigon. And when the Viet Cong came, they would slaughter, they would execute all the wealthy people. There was a rich man in the city who had a black jaguar. The way they knew who the rich people were was by the possessions that they had. And he took it to the Saigon City Square. And he stood on the hood and he began to auction it off. And getting no bids because everybody knew if you're driving a jaguar into Via Kong Kong, you're a dead man. Finally, from the back row, a man held up two cans of cold beer. And he says, I will give you two cans of cold beer. You see, your riches mean nothing when your life is on the line. And yet Jesus said, so many of you have made your life out of your riches. Now be careful that you don't misunderstand. Jesus did not say that possessions are sinful. In fact, in his letter to Timothy, he said he has given us these things to richly enjoy. Secondly, he did not say we no longer need to work, that it doesn't matter anymore because the scriptures are full of illustrations that by the sweat of your brow, you will put bread on the table. It also does not say that planning and saving is wrong. In fact, the scriptures are full of those. And he says, go to the anthill, you lazy man, Proverbs 6. And he says, study the ants and how they plan forward. He talks about plowing your fields and preparing them to plant the soil. He does not say that the needs of others need not be your concern. He also did not say that troubling times and trials will never come. Now, we change gears. Jesus' healing prescription for those who are making their treasure here on earth, don't need to now discover that it won't go with them and it will not last, is given to us in verses 25 to 34. These two are connected together. This is the application of what he has just said. Notice the outline that he throws upon it. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Verse 31, therefore do not be anxious. Verse 34, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Do not be anxious is the instruction. Anxiety, this is a, this is a timely and a toxic topic. About four o'clock yesterday, I told Linda, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give up trying to answer all the questions. I'm just, going to, I'm just going to tell you what Jesus said about it and we'll make it work. I don't want to be one of those who says that there are not issues of anxiety and panic attack that are medically addressed and need to be concerned. We're talking about things of faith and trust here. An anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up, Proverbs 12, 25 says. Colossians 4 says, let your speech always be seasoned as it were with salt, be sensitive 
So many times when people are in hard times, anxiety is defined as concerns or fears, an uneasiness, a dread, an internal agitation, a care. It's, it's the feeling that you are inadequate to cope with what's going on around you. And those can often be very, very real. This, doesn't, this is not even an attempt to answer all of that. I have enough pastoral friends that have shared stories with me and family that I understand. These, are, these issues of anxiety are issues of trust and faith in God. So a cheerful word is not just telling them to read one more Bible verse and pray one more prayer and this time mean it. But Psalm 56.3 says, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. So Jesus' prescription for dealing with anxiety, and he deals the word anxious six times in this paragraph. So it, it is the theme of the paragraph, and it's the application of what he said about where you put your treasure, there your heart will go. And his, his solution here, his prescription is, number one, look at the whole of your life, verses 25 and 6. Therefore, I tell you, whenever there's a therefore, you ask yourself, what's it there for? What's there to answer what was proposed in the preceding paragraph? Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Now he summarizes all of the essentials, the necessities of life with these terms. What you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on it. All of life, every issue of life, he says, don't be anxious about that, because is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Isn't there more to life than just simply surviving from day to day and getting us? And then he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. I want you to notice again, 16 times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds them that God the Creator is their Heavenly Father. The Sermon on the Mount is not written to non-believers, it's written to those who by grace have come to understand their need of a Savior, and that Jesus in His amazing kindness and grace gave His life in our place, was crucified on the cross, buried in the tomb, raised on the third day, seated at the right hand of the Father, and if you trust that, He gives you eternal life. Those become the children of God. He is our Heavenly Father. He reminds them that your Heavenly Father knows your need and He cares. And He even cares for the birds. Are you not a more value? Than they? You see, one of the problems with our not trusting God is we are not thinking people. We're busy people. We're going through life at a, at a breakneck pace. We don't slow down long enough to study the world and all of the stories that God has put around us. Proverbs chapter 6, he says, you know, go to the anthill, you sluggard, and consider her way. She doesn't need a daily supervisor. She doesn't need a boss standing over her shoulder. And she does her job. She does it in harmony with everybody else, and she's planning forward for the winter. Take some time. When you're a parent, you don't have that kind of time. Moms have got people pulling on them all day, asking for things. You can't slow down and study what's going on. When you're a grandparent, things slow down. You walk slower. You go on the sidewalk. You take time for the two-year-olds to examine little bugs that are crawling, and you start to learn from that. And then when you're a great-grandparent, you just hit it into granny gear, and you just enjoy life for the first time. He said, consider the birds. I like this. Martin Luther said, he is making the birds our schoolmasters. The helpless sparrow becomes a theologian and preaches 
to the wisest of men. Look at the whole of life. What is life all about? Is it just surviving or is there more? Second, he said, look to the nature of life. Verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Or some of you may have, can add an inch to his stature. I always wanted to be six foot tall. It wasn't in the books. The NBA is discriminatory. I'm not tall enough to get the contract. I've got brothers and others that went past that. I can't do that. But here it says, can you add to the span of your life? Can you actually worry yourself into a more extended lifetime? Psalm 139 says, the day of my death was written before the day of my birth. A week ago, we hosted a funeral for a 24-year-old university senior. Was able to say to the family and friends, she did not die one minute before God's plan. So can you add time to your life by worrying? No, but maybe you can shorten it. The reality is, is that is the nature of life. It is a gift from God. He is the giver and sustainer of life, and we simply trust in Him, and we know nothing to alter it. It doesn't mean you don't eat healthy and exercise well, but the reality is you will one day die, and you will die at exactly the appointed time. And when you do, you'll leave everything you've accumulated behind. He said, look at God's generosity Verse 28 to 30, why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He's just talking about the fields. and you just, God just graciously scatters wild flower seeds out there. And as you're driving down country roads and you see these beautiful fields, the Heavenly Father who has all of the world on His shoulders cares enough to make certain that they're well-dressed for the occasion. People used to travel months and months and bring great gifts to Solomon just to admire the wonder of his kingdom and his accomplishments. And Jesus said, even Solomon was not so stunningly wardrobed as the fields. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, they would just cut it off, bundle it up, and they would use it to light their, their little fire pits in the middle of their house to warm their breakfast. Will he not much more clothe you? And then he throws this in. O ye of little faith. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, Lovely lilies, how you rebuke our foolish nervousness. But it's not, oh, you of no faith, because he's writing to believers, those who have had the faith to trust in Jesus, but people that have inadequate little faith. Little faith is a failure to apply what we know to be true when we face the circumstances of real living. Little faith is failure to take scriptural statements at their face value and totally believe in them. Little faith is the failure to think through issues with clarity. We are, we are an anxious people because we are no longer a thinking people. We are active and responsive people. Little faith is a failure to realize the implications of our salvation and the new position that it puts us in in relationship to God. Because of our faith in Jesus, he gave us the right to be called the children of God, and he calls himself our Father. 
I'm not going to somebody that doesn't like me or approve of me and begging him to give what he does not want to give. The reason I have little faith is I don't understand what it is to be the child of the king. Little faith is a failure to know God's love as we should. Sometimes when you tell people, you know, you, you have a heavenly father, you'll see a tension come. They either did not have a gracious, kind, empathetic, sympathetic father, or then perhaps they grew up with no father at all, and they have a distorted view, but he is a father who loves you, who approves of you, who provides for you. They have a father that knows your needs long before you ask. Little faith is a failure to remember that the power of God is at work in us. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Philippians 4 puts it this way. Rejoice in the Lord always, written by a man sitting in a Roman dungeon, chained to two Roman soldiers as guards. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, reflecting back on past graces. The reason I expect future grace from God is because I look in the rearview mirror and found out whenever I had a need, he showed up and he met the need. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that's not the end. We always stop there. We forget the next verse. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, the problem with our anxiety-ridden hearts is we're not thinking people anymore. You take control of your thoughts, he says to the Corinthians. Take every thought captive. He said we have to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're overwhelmed by anxiety and fear because we refuse to discipline our thoughts to the things that we know as absolute truths, and instead we begin to speculate on the things that may never happen, over which we have no control. Think on these things. Practice these things. It's a learned discipline, and the God of peace will be with you. Then look at the Lord's faithfulness, verses 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? All the necessities, essentials of life. For the pagans, the Gentiles, seek after these things. They, they devote their entire life and all their energies for those things. What they eat what they wear, what they drink, where they live, that's all they know of life. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He's not saying they are not important. He's just saying, I already know you need that. Trust me to provide it. 
Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, Joshua sliding his feet into the impossible sandals of Moses. With fear and trembling, the Lord comes to him with this message. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not like the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled. 1 Peter 5, verse 6, Humble yourself beneath the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time. When I am all tied up in worry and anxiety about things, things I cannot control, I am trying to be God in my own life. And God said, step off the throne. It's already occupied. I'll sit on the throne, and when the time is right, I'll exalt you. Cast all your anxiety on him. Tell him what your problem is, because you are his concern. He's your father. He does care. And then look at the key issues of the kingdom, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added. To seek is to concentrate upon. It's to be earnest about. It's to stay focused. What is the thing that you're seeking? What are you concentrating on? What are you exhausting your energies for? He said you should exhaust them for the kingdom of God, which is basically the desire that God would rule as king and lord in my life, and as a result of that, begin to reign as king and lord and sovereign in the world around me. Seek that. Put your energies there. Let God take care of the necessities of life, and you focus on the things that are eternal than last. And his righteousness, the righteousness is simply earnestly desiring to increase in my daily holiness, my daily faith, my daily trust in what God is doing. Living a godly life in the world today that looks different than all of the lives around me. And he will add these things to you. If you put that first, you you focus there, you work hard there, he'll add the other things. And I was thinking about Solomon when he became a young king, and God sent a message to him, and he says, ask me what you will, and I'll give it to you. And he said, would you just give me wisdom? I'm just a youth. I haven't got a clue how to go in and come out, and I have to lead all these people. And God said, because you've asked for wisdom, I'll give you wisdom, and I will give you riches. Seek the best thing first. Let God take care of of the rest. And then finally, look at this present day. Verse 34. Therefore, the final application, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He does not say that there won't be challenges to your faith tomorrow. What he is saying is, is that he's called you to live in the here and now today. Don't carry your yesterday with you or your tomorrow with you, but the instruction is live to the max today. He's given you today. Use today. Don't squander today worried about tomorrow, regretting yesterday. Don't try to anticipate God. Don't borrow tomorrow's graces for today. Hebrews 13 is a whole text. We'll be studying that starting in the fall. Hebrews, not 13. It'll be a couple years probably time we get to 13. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was trained as a physician. He was a medical doctor in England, actually served on the Royal Medical Team. And after six years, since the call of God to ministry, he's one of the great biblical expositors. As we learn in wisdom to take our days one by one as they come, forgetting yesterday and tomorrow, so we must learn this vital importance of walking with God day by day, by relying upon him day by day applying to him for the particular needs of each day. The fatal temptation to which we are all prone is that of trying to store grace against the future. Leave it with him. Leave it entirely with him. Confident and assured, he will always be before you. He will be there before you to meet the problem. Turn to him and you will find that he is there, that he knows all about it, And he knows all about you. Therefore, do not be anxious about your life. Your heavenly Father already knows your needs. So what does a donkey have in common with a doctor? Or a lion with a lawyer? Or a tiger and a teacher? A ferret and a farmer? Or a pig with a pastor? The last verse of Psalm 49, the riddle psalm, says this. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perish. Both man and beast will die. Both man and beast will leave everything they did and accumulated behind. But the man has the choice to live and to die with understanding. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Thanks, you're dismissed.